Okay, just a brief little scripture tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we will take a look at all 58 verses. So... Hear the voice of the living God. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in the Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and, the Israel, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him... Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will, en- 
Whoa. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him as his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated him before Saul. They repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. And chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Well, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. Add the people of, uh, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay, so here's a little outline for you. This is where we're going. 1 Samuel 17, the the main idea we want to walk away with tonight is this. God's champion defies all expectations. I am on, yes. I'm recording right now, my voice on the machine. God's champion defies all expectations. And so... um, As we think about that, I just want you to think about, um, as we begin, all of the uh, situations that we find ourselves in that seem like nobody could possibly pull us out of this kind of a problem, you know? I mean, whether it's our mom lost on a highway somewhere, or whether it's our husband without a job, and wondering if um, God will uh, help you to stay in the home and in the church that you love, you know, and whether it's um, uh, you can weather um, yet another baby lost, um, and you could fill in blank after blank here, right? Um, we, uh, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where people get sick and die. We live in a world um, where people, uh, uh, people are evil and hate God's people. And we live in a world where we are constantly running into people who are defaming God's honor. And we're right there in the middle of it. And I think this story, if we'll allow it to speak freshly to us, um, will enable us to trust not in ourselves, but in God's champion who defies all expectations. That was certainly the case in this story that I've just read to you, this real story that has, that has happened in the history uh, of God's people. So as we, as we build this case, as, as I try to convince you of this truth that you already know, that, that God's champion defies all expectations, I want you to think first about the first part of this story. And I think it sort of, this story sort of maps out our own story. And the first point we see is that without him, that is without God's champion, all goes as men expect. In other words, if we don't, if we don't see God's champion, if God's champion doesn't show up, then kind of everything that we see is what we get. 
Everything goes according to not only Christians' expectations, but everyone's expectations. And, and as, we, as we look at how the story opens, I think you'll see that that point is true. I mean, consider the setting here, the setting of a battle being drawn up, armies, you know, approaching each other, one army with a champion and the other army without a champion. So without a champion, all goes horribly the way that you expect, right? I mean, it's the bleakness of battle without a leader, without somebody to charge in front and have a, and have a game plan and, and have some, some, uh, some sense of success in front of them that they will lead you in. I mean, consider how the story begins. It, it, it just in, in, in way of geography, you've got a map I've provided for you there. Um, the battle takes pl- place in the Valley of Elah. Now, that doesn't roll right off my tongue. Um, and uh, likely none of you went, oh, I know exactly where that is when you heard it. Um, but what's interesting is it's in the foothills, and uh, it's in this region that sort of sits in between Bethlehem and Gath. It sits in between the, the, uh, the city that Jesse and his family is from and the city in which this Philistine champion Goliath is from. And and it's really dramatic fashion that this text opens. I mean the armies of the of the the army of the Philistines is on is on one uh, uh, slope and and the army of the Israelites is on the other and they're facing off against each other and they're looking down into this valley. They're opposing each other, looking at the floor of this valley. And on that floor emerges the Philistine champion. And he is a sight to be seen. I mean, if you pay attention as a Bible reader, there's a, if you want the fancy name for it, it's called pace retardation. It means the pace of the narrative slows way down. And you get lots and lots of description about something. The author's trying to ramp up something for you here. I mean, we get, we get so many words of description about the Philistines' champion. And, and while I won't recount them, I've already read them to you. And you've read them in preparation for tonight. Consider just three things that I'll highlight. This guy's nine foot six inches tall. Now, I love watching the NBA and there ain't nobody that tall. I mean, if you're seven foot six, you are an absolute freak of nature. This guy's two foot taller than that. Any building you've ever been in, this guy has to stoop down, whether it's a courthouse with a huge entrance. I mean, this guy is massive. He's wearing 126 pounds of armor. Now, I'm smart enough not to ask women their weight, but maybe there's somebody here that's about 126 pounds or used to be 126 pounds. (laughs) And this guy's wearing not everything, just his armor is that heavy, okay? Um, And oh, by the way, he's got a spear, not the whole spear, mind you, just the iron head, the part that's going to impale somebody, just that front end is 15 or 16 pounds. 
a bowling ball, if you will, on the end of a really big, long pole. Try to carry that, much less use it, right? I mean, this is an impressive, if you weren't facing off against him, right, champion. He's an absolutely terrifying champion if he's coming against you. The, and, and, and what's more, not only does the other side have a champion, but he is calling out for who the champion on the other side is. Come meet me. In, in verses 8 and 9, uh, just, just let your eyes drop there again to, to pick up the narrative. Um, uh, 8 why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. Essentially, he says, let's do single combat here. Why have massive loss of life here in this battle? I'm here. Send your guy. That's the challenge. And at that point, crickets. Nobody wants to go face off again. I mean, can you imagine this guy? I mean, I can, I can imagine a foe much shorter, much, you know, you know, much less, you know, mighty than this, that I would be like, nah, I'm out, right? And nobody is coming out against him. No one answers the call. Um, and not only is he calling out for a champion, I think this is not in a, uh, this is not in a library doing a book study where this is happening. These are soldiers Everybody there is a fighter, and not one of them answers the call. And what's more, not only do they cower in fear against this other champion, this champion is doing more than taunting them. He's taunting their nation. He defies Israel. He speaks with contempt. He mocks them. He taunts them. No one answers the call. You would expect Saul to answer the call. Remember what Saul looks like? I mean, just, just go back a few chapters, chapter 10, verse 23, and remind yourself of how he's described. Remember when Israel was looking for their first king, right? 10, 23, then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Later, it said, is anyone like him? The prophet says, says that directly to Saul. So, so one might expect that Saul would, would, would be the champion, right? It's even suggested, I think, by Goliath and by the narrator here in verse 8 when he says, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not a... You'd expect that to say an Israelite there for it to be parallel, right? I'm a Philistine, you're an Israelite. That's not what it says. It says, you're, are you not servants of Saul? I believe this is even more taunting here to say like, why does the big man Saul that you all serve come on down here? You know, I, I, I get that sense from, from, the, from the structure of that sentence. Or you might have expected one of David's older brothers to come down and face off against this Philistine champion. I mean, verse 13 names them. Do you see that? The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Why do we get all this detail? Why, is it, why doesn't it just say David's brothers there? Because we just read their names. Yeah. 
We just read their names in the last chapter as, as they were marched uh, before, uh, before Samuel. Let's just take Eliab as an example. Look at chapter 16 and verse 6. When they came, that is the Jesse and his sons, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Why? Well, it doesn't say straight out, but we, ha- we, we get it by reading into what the Lord says in response to him in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. So in other words, Samuel has looked on Eliab and said, this is an impressive dude. Surely this is the next king of Israel. In the same way, the people had thought when they sized up Saul earlier, right? And so we might have expected Saul to answer this call. He didn't. We might have expected um, one of David's brothers um, to, uh, to answer the call, and they don't. No one's motivated to fight for God's honor here. No one's motivated to rescue God's people here. No one has any concern of loss of life of, the, of his brothers in arms here. No one has faith that God would bring deliverance. Just like the spies in Numbers 13 that was sent into the promised land, they only saw big guys and they were afraid. And that's what this text looks like. Without God's champion, all go as men expect. People just remain in their fear. They remain under the taunt of the world. And this is Satan's greatest tool, isn't it? Or one of his great tools. To get God's people afraid. This is one of the ways that Satan roars and prowls and tries to take God's people out by getting us to be afraid and not to have faith in God's champion. You know, I think that this this satanic reference is even hinted at in our text. You don't don't hear it in the ESV, but if we were to read for the New New American Standard, in verse 5, when when, uh, Goliath uh, is being described, he's being described as wearing scale armor, perhaps reminiscent of the serpent in the garden. But nevertheless, with, without God's champion, all goes as men expect. But then we move forward in the narrative and we learn this next piece of the argument. When he arrives, when God's champion arrives, men don't expect anything then either. It's, it's, it's crazy to think that God's champion would actually arrive at the battlefield and no one would recognize him. And no one would hope that anything else might, might, uh, might happen because of his arrival. You see, God's champion is humble. I mean, look at how David here is described. Look at verses 14 and 15. He's the youngest. 15. He went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He's not a committed warrior. He's a shepherd and he's doing double duty. And a shepherd's work is nothing to anybody. And so we see him here as this humble, younger brother, nothing guy. And that's what God's champion often looks like. Look at verses 17 and 18 also. Look at this this, um, 
honorable work that his dad gives to him. I mean, look at verse 17 there. Jesse said to his David, to David his son, take for your brothers, the real soldiers, an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brother. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So not only is he the youngest, not only is he the shepherd, now he's doing this sort of really lowly work of just bringing some refreshments to the people that are really doing the fighting. And so because he's comes in this humble estate, nobody recognizes him. And so no one expects anything different because he's arrived. In fact, even when they start to piece together that this guy might be God's champion, men oppose him. And that's what we see in this text very plainly. I mean, they see him as weak and inexperienced, for example. Look at verse 33 uh, when he's speaking with the king. Saul said to David, you are not able, you are not able, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. So, you see, when God's champion hits the scene... Men size him up the way they've been sizing up their enemies. They use the same, the same measuring stick. And so when he arrives, they expect nothing else is going to change, that, that his arrival is meaningless and he's not going to be able to accomplish anything for them. But even beyond that, even beyond that, men often see God's champion as being unimportant or even coming with wrong motives. And this, this, of course, we pick up in the, in the words of Eliab, his oldest brother, in verse 28 and following. Uh, let's look down to, where is that? Middle of 28. Why have you come down? And now, I, m- I mentioned two things. They see God's champion as both unimportant and also accuse him of wrong motives. First, unimportant. Look what he says there. It's a little jab. Did you see it? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? This pittance of work that you have given yourself to, this, this unimportant labors that you are, are, are giving yourself to while we're here fighting the battle. So men do this. They see God's champion and see what he's doing as unimportant. That trickles down to God's people, of course. The world sees the things that we're concerned about as stupid and pointless. Long history, standing behind a a long line of God's people in that way. But beyond that, his brother actually, I mean, listen to these words here. Listen to, I mean, he says presumption, but he's being presumptuous. The irony, right? He says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, you've come down just to glory in the gore. I know your heart. Who says that? How could one man even know another man's heart? But again, just as with the scaly armor of Goliath, I think here we hear the hiss of of the serpent. Mm -hmm. 
This is, this is somebody that is attributing wicked motives to God's champion. You know what that's called in the New Testament? That's called taking the work of the Holy Spirit and blaspheming against it when it's attributed to Jesus, right? I mean, think about that for a moment. This is real wickedness. One commentator said, this is facing Goliath before he faced Goliath. And, and this is how men think when, when, they're, when they're not seeing through eyes of faith, when they're, when they're weighing things in the way that the world weighs things, right? And so when, when, when God's champion arrives, men reject him because they don't expect really anything to happen differently after his arrival. But boy, I'm glad the story doesn't stop there. And we move on to this next point, and, and it's so delightful. It's the, it's the crescendo of the story, right? If, if, you, if, you're, if you're a music person, right? If we're listening to the symphony, this is where all the, all the uh, instruments soar, right? This is this point that God's champion actually defies expectations. That his arrival, despite what men might think, actually does alter the situation of God's people, God's champion looks nothing like God's people expect, but looks exactly like God expects. He, I mean, think about this for a minute. The setup comes chapters earlier, right? First, look at chapter 15 and look at verse 28. This is after Saul has failed to wipe out the Amalekites as God commanded. Concerned with his own glory, not the Lord's. Building a statue to himself, patting himself on the back. And Samuel comes and announces God's verdict. Verse 20, what did I say, 8? Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. There's somebody coming, the prophet says, that's not like you. You're what the world expects. There's somebody coming that's better than that. And if we go back even a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 13 and verse 14, it's said in even more striking terms, this is yet another time that Saul has been disobedient. And he, and, and, and he says here, Samuel says in 14, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's God's champion. Not somebody that looks like the world expects, but somebody that God expects to look precisely this way. A man after his own heart. What is that exactly? What, I mean, that's, that's a phrase we've heard if we've been in church for a minute, Right? But what does it mean? What does it mean for a man to be after God's own heart or to share God's heart? I would submit to you that it means this, that his heart beats with the desire for God to be glorified and honored and to defy anyone who, who, who opposes that. That's God's champion. God's champion has God's own heart where he is zealous for God's glory 
and will defy anyone who, who tries to, to silence that glory or to steal it away. You know, and this sets the stage for God's champion because, because there's been an opponent throughout this chapter, an opponent to God's glory. It's been Goliath coming before everybody and tearing God's name down. You know, there, there's a, th- this word defy or mock or deride. Those are all coming from the same exact Hebrew root. It appears six times and it's, it's evenly dispersed throughout the narrative. This idea of Goliath defying God and his armies. Or even the Israelites themselves saying what he's doing, that he's defying God's armies. And then in, in David's indignation, his righteous indignation saying, what, what will happen to, for the man who goes out against this man who mocks God? You see, you see, God's champion sees that when somebody defies God's people, they're actually defying God. He recognizes that. He, in fact, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've heard this little phrase, the battle cry a couple times in this narrative. That's the battle cry for God's champion. When somebody speaks a word of dishonor against God's people and against God himself. In fact, we know this to be true because of what David says. I mean, look there in verse 26. Now, this is very interesting. Verse uh, 26, check me on this. I think it's the first time David speaks in the scriptures. He was silent when he was anointed, right? I think this is the first time David speaks. And when he speaks, listen to the words now. Verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Friends, it makes a difference for there to be a champion that thinks the existence of a living God actually sets his course. And all that would defy, that would try to bring a reproach upon him, that's his battle cry. And so, as I said, his look, the look of God's champion, it defies everyone's expectations. Nobody thinks he looks like a champion, right? But he acts differently than everybody else that he's fighting for, right? Nobody else, remember, answered the call. And Goliath has been mocking God and his people since the beginning of this this story, since the beginning of this battle. Notice all the words that he uses there. He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Why does he say that? Because Philistines are outside the covenant of the living God. Right? And he talks about this idea of a reproach. All throughout the New Testament, we're in 1 Timothy in, in Sunday mornings right now, and that whole book is about don't be a reproach on God's church. Live right. Be godly. Right? Do this and don't do that. Why? So that the word of the Lord won't be dishonored. Right? That language is all throughout it. 
God's people are supposed to be all about not bringing reproach upon God and actually honoring Him in everything they do and say. And when, when somebody stands up and opposes the living God, you and I, right behind David, we're to be God's champion in that way. Not because we're all that. Not because you're some warrior. Not because you're the bravest of the brave. Not because your faith is better than my faith or something like that. No, but because we have faith in the living God. We have been made to be in covenant with him based on the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we stand in that line behind David. And we should. And, and so this is the part of be like David that we ought to take up and wear that t-shirt. But what happens? God delivers in miraculous fashion here. But even before he does... David remembers that this is how my God has always delivered me. I mean, did you see that in verses 34 through 37? This is where he's talking with the king and he's saying, no, 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 listen, I'm all set. I can totally go up against this guy. I've been up against lions and bears. Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Revenant. I ain't going up against a bear. That lamb's going to get eaten and I'm going to be hightailing it the other direction. Right? A lion? Forget about it, right? Now, we could wrongly hear those words and essentially go like, David was just the man for this job. He was actually the best warrior Israel ever had. He had skills. I mean, to kill a bear, right? But, but let's pay careful attention to what he says here. He does talk about that experience, right? But look at what he says in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul even gets it. He says, go and the Lord be with you. That is precisely the right thing the king should have said. So in a, in a moment, he probably, I'm sure, speaks words that he doesn't realize at this point. Right? But David attributes God's, God's power and his faithfulness to his past deliverances. And that actually fuels his present faith that he'll be delivered uh, out of the hand of Goliath. You know, that sounds a lot like the guys that were going to be thrown into the furnace, doesn't it? Let me think back to Daniel 3. We won't go there now. I'll keep marching forward here. But, but Daniel 3 and verses 15 through 18, those three that are going to get thrown in the fiery furnace, they're like, hey, look, we don't need to answer you about not bowing down to the idol. God's going to deliver us. And if he doesn't deliver us, he's still our God. He's still glorious. Right? I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just fantastic, that, that speech. They're God's champion in that chapter. Right? So it's not just David, friends. People of faith that see God's honor at stake regardless of their current circumstances and the impossible you know, human uh, uh, escape, right? They're the ones that march forward as God's champion. They look nothing like the world expects a champion to look like. Just like all of the people of faith that have been martyred down through the ages, mm-hmm. down even to this present day. Those are champions. The, one, the ones that, that say, I have, my, my Lord has been faithful to me all of these years and I will not turn away from him now when it matters. Right? It, we just see it again on display here, what God's champion 
looks like. You know, also when he speaks to Goliath and, and uh, answers him, right? Uh, look what he says. Let me make sure I got the right verse here. He talks about how he comes. Where is it? Let me find it. Thank you. Yes. You come to me with all of these weapons, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. In the name of the Lord of hosts. Friends, the name of the Lord of hosts is inextricably linked to his glory. You know, when, when, when I say your name, Gabby, right? Like, yes, there's some understanding of who you are if I know you and we've been friends for a long time or something like that. Or maybe even your accomplishments or things like that. But when we say the name of the Lord our God, that's got a lot of baggage to it. Not bad baggage, mind you, right? These are the glorious accomplishments and, 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 and faithful eras that God has reigned over that come with it. And if you are in covenant with him, his name's your name, right? It's kind of like the, the Tower of Babel. They were trying to make a name for themselves. And what did God promise Abraham? That he would make him a great name because he would be the start of God's people, nation Israel, right? And so, and so, God's champion rises up against Goliath, who tries to dishonor the Lord. And we see that the, that the lesson that he's teaching us as he does so is that we might learn again that God doesn't fight like men. God doesn't fight like men. And so he defies all expectations. God defies all expectations through his champion. I mean, notice, for example... This is a verse that's easily mis, uh, uh, um, glossed over because of the excitement of the battle. But before the battle, as he's still with the king, look at the first thing he says to this king in verse 32. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He has a concern for God's people here. Let no man's heart fail. He knows that they're all trembling and afraid. Nobody is answering the call. And so, and so this Savior of God's people right, has a concern for the hearts of those people. And notice also, the uh, I love this, in verse 48, we see faith in action. right? Just as we learn throughout the scriptures, faith without deeds is not real faith. This is a faith that's actually real. Look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He didn't have any second thoughts here. This is a faith that fueled his feet. He ran into the battle. It's just so exciting to me. And also, notice that the Lord uses regular people. And he uses the skills and experience of faith that God has given those people. I mean, look at verse 49 there. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Now, think of this. He's running towards the battlefield, towards this nine foot six guy. And he just sort of, like, there, like he wasn't in the battle, just sort of puts his hand in his pocket. Do you... You ever see those scary movies when the bad guy's running, to get, running for the teen girl and she tries to start the car? What always happens? She always fumbles the keys. 
right? Or can't get the door unlocked or whatever, right? This, it's like, it's nothing. Reaches into his pouch, pulls it out. Put, it, do, it doesn't drop the stone, puts it right in there, no problem. And just he, Because that's how he fought off bears and lions. And God uses regular people to, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, protect his honor and to deliver his own people. He doesn't even have a sword. That's, that's really explicit in the text. He has to use Goliath's own sword to cut his head off. David also, think of this now. Think of the geography that I explained at the front end. Going down to the floor of that valley was not unlike going into the grave. Because men had no expectation he was coming back out. God's champion faces death and emerges from the grave victorious. It's hard not to see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And what's more, the enemies were on the run after that, and God's people had victory. Not just God's champion, but God's people vicariously through him. Those Philistines beat it. They ran, look at that map, they, were, they ran back to their cities. They were, they were beating it out of Dodge. They did not want any part of a, of a battle that included a champion like that that defies expectations. Okay, let me bring this home. We have this last little bit, this weird little conversation between the king and his captain, which is very weird because the chapter before makes very explicit that David's already working for, the, for Saul, and he already knows who his dad is and where he's from and whatever, and I don't know why he doesn't know here. I don't know if he's forgotten because he rules over so many people or he thinks he's so important and a peon musician he doesn't need to remember. I don't know. But I think why this is included here is for this last point. The opponent of God's champion, they continue in their worldly expectations. What's he asking about? What family is this guy from? He wants to know about this guy that has just beat Goliath. He's promised his daughter to who will ever kill Goliath, we are told earlier in the chapter. And so he wants to know what kind of guy this is at least. Perhaps, perhaps, he has actually taken the prophet's words to heart and, think, and might suspect this is the guy that's better than me. It's hard to know. But the point that I'm trying to make is that despite this miraculous deliverance, Saul's not rejoicing here. Mm-hmm. He wants to know something about this guy. Uh, we need to know where he's from. We need to know something about him. And he charges his commander to go figure it out. So, how does this text anticipate the Lord Jesus Christ? In Luke 23... And verses 35 through 37, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to just read a few of these lines. You'll know them right off. The rulers scoffed at him, that is Jesus hanging from the cross, saying he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, saying if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. What really made them mad a chapter earlier was when he said this. They asked him if he was the Christ, and he said, From now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
and they lost their minds. But the truth that runs in the background of, of, of both of those texts, where, where men didn't expect a savior like that, they didn't expect a king like that, a messiah like that. It's what Jesus said, recorded in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And he goes on to explain, if it was of this world, we'd be fighting the way that men fight. But inasmuch as it isn't, I go to the cross. That's my, my recap of that text, Right? Because of this, because of this, we can walk in his footsteps. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, because he has gone down into the valley of Elah for us and defeated uh, the, the, the champion of our enemies, even the curse of sin and death itself, and has come back out with death's head cut off in his hand. Because of that, we, friends, can face all of the trials that God gives us. We can walk in his footsteps, zealously defending God's honor by both the way we react to trials and also what we say. David says more than he does in this chapter, by the way. He does do, and incredibly so. But he's got three speeches in this chapter, and they're all filled, fueled, full, right to the brim with faith. And we need to be like that. We, we need to be able, or we need to be willing, rather, to walk into those times when people are dishonoring God zealously. Because Jesus Christ has already won our biggest battle, and so what are we afraid of? Right? After all, 2 Timothy 1.10 tells us that he abolished death. That's our champion. That's what our champion looks like. And so God's champion defies all expectations. And so we needn't fear like Saul and, and all of the soldiers of Israel. But we need to have eyes of faith. We need, not, not, we need to not size up our problems the way the world does. And, 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 and closely on the heels of that, we, we need to, to look not for solutions the way that the world looks like, but we need to have eyes of faith and expect that a God who has already cut off the head of death will also deliver us in this battle as well. So that's the message, I think, of David and Goliath in this chapter. I hope that's a blessing to you guys. Thank you so much. God bless you.